Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, sourceful of secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Controls Tour. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then you I might. did come up with uh, Nick Mason, sourceful of secrets. You did. And in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So... Join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. It goes up to 1972 with all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never mm. heard, stuff that no one's ever Echoes, heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. Was <laughs> he... <laughs> Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hello, Guy. Hello, Gary. How are you? Oh, I missed you. I know. Same. It's been, it's been an age. Mid-July, I think we last saw each other. Yeah. But you've and been everywhere, you been? haven't you? you well, had a- I went to Greece uh, on holiday. I climbed a few mountains in the Lake District and I... Um, I went to Iceland, which was an extraordinary place for a few days. And we did a lot of... We like to get out and hike around. No, you I know. know. You're that dad. You are that dad, aren't you? <laughs> Come on, everyone. Come on. It's not that cold. <laughs> well, this is exactly how I feel about season three. <laughs> which we're about to embark on. Yes. I could see the peak ahead of us. <laughs> well, hopefully uh, too much rain. I know, Storm going- clouds gathering. It's going into our tour of America, which uh, so we've got a couple of weeks. We're 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 off on tour. I think in a week or so's time in the states uh, for six weeks, and we will hopefully be bringing rock on tours to you from various cities in Canada and America. Yeah, and hope I mean because obviously it makes we won't. It'll be good for American artists because we'll have much less of a time def- difference to contend with. Yeah, yeah. Did you discover any new music this summer while I've been away no i hate music um not really i've i've actually been listening to a lot of marla (laughs) because at the end of the tour i went straight back to hungary and i was a judge on a sort of thing called virtual socks which is like an x factor for uh young classical music prodigies and the english people on the panel were me and harvey goldsmith and it, um, and it just kind of got me thinking that sort of classical music has almost become like the underground. What we do is sort of the total mainstream as opposed to when we were kids. So I've been immersed in classical music more than anything. So- That's great. You know what I got into? Because my son listens to a lot of different music, my 18-year-old, who, who's going up to Edinburgh to do uh, music for That's for right, fantastic. Now. I got into Black Midi. Oh, yeah. No, no, I listened to that on your recommendation. I mean, it's very big and very dramatic. I mean, it's great oh, yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're only young and they're just doing the most complicated stuff. But the other thing that's really exciting that's going around is math rock. And there are a f- few sort of 
bands that I'm going to delve into over the next few weeks in math rock. Math rock. What is that? Is that like a sort of new prog thing? Where it's all it is really of... where they play in different time signatures and uh, and it's quite it's quite a thing. My son's. It should be maths math rock. rock. That's that's an American term. Math. math. Maths rock. It wouldn't be progs rock though, would it? it wouldn't sound as good, would it? No, yeah. but we don't say progs. <laughs> maths rock. Maths rock. <laughs> Algebraic rock. Yeah. Oh, that's something completely different, isn't it? Algebra um, would be a would be quite a good soul singer. <laughs> anyway, we've got Ian Brody on. We have um, yes, fantastic. Ian, which an extraordinary career in the. I mean, well, in that he's. He did that with, you know, people become artists and then they sort of drift off and become producers. Whereas he was an artist, became a producer, then went and become an artist and carried on producing. And he's, you know, an yeah. amazing character. But, but what I'm interested in is because we haven't had, I don't think we've had anyone on from this era of the Liverpool scene. No, this is something I really, really want to get into uh, with him. Uh, that's actually the bit that really fascinates me. It's, it's like that's mid 70s Liverpool. It's almost like sort of, it's like a punk version of Paris in the 20s. Yeah, and Eric's <laughs> was the club, right? Uh, exactly. There's all these characters, but let, I want to save this. Um, We're saving it. Save We're saving it. it. Save if it. Save fact, it. In fact, I could see him coming through the door now, electronically speaking. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. But it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. Thank you guys for still being around, still making music, still being into it and doing this podcast. It, it's, uh, it's fabulous. So great to talk to two guys that have done this. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. Too, too get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Oh, thanks for coming on, Ian. We met many years ago, didn't we? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and yeah. On a holiday, a family it's holiday. Like uh, another lifetime ago. Actually, or was it LA it? or something like that? It was in Los Angeles, and I remember our kids were in the pool. That's right. Yeah, yeah. They're giants now, aren't they? Are those kids, obviously. Absolutely, yeah. And you, you came to one of my comedy shows once, I assume by mistake. <laughs> Very uh, self-effacing. You know. How do you go to a comedy thing by mistake? No, I wrote that. I wrote that line for him anyway. He wouldn't dare have said it about himself. <laughs> Where are you, Ian? I'm just, I'm just in, in my house, actually, in West London. All right, OK. We, we, us three, have got something in common, other than being musicians and writers, obviously. But we've all written songs that have been sung on football terraces. Oh, yes. I, I had a very, very exciting summer because I'm an Arsenal fan. And we signed Zinchenko, the Ukrainian boy. And all over Twitter and Instagram, I'm seeing the crowd singing Zinchenko, always believe in your soul. And my 13-year-old boy, who's an absolute arsenal nut but has no interest in what i do musically suddenly was as proud as punch about this particular thing and, and no, it is, it's a lovely thing isn't it when people are singing a song it's the best yeah it's the best because the cookers might you know i co-wrote vindaloo which was yeah. sort of can't, well it wasn't hot on your heels but it was the other song at the, at the yeah no absolutely but, yeah. Uh, but you always want because we had that terrible thing of of the chorus of vindaloo it's just that little bit too long so there's that fantastic thing if you'd hear the fans would all start singing it 
and then they kind of get a bit lost and then they'd run out of steam and then they just go into my darling Clementine. <laughs> but, but Guy, wasn't there, on the re-release of Three Lions, Ian, wasn't there, and you two were in competition with each other for number one and number two. Where were who, who won? We no, he won. They won. Obviously, we were number two. I knew. I'm that. Still I knew that. I just wanted you to say. It was probably oh, you. She's <laughs> rubbing it in. <laughs> I, I think um, it's a bit of a. It was a moment, actually, wasn't it? It was just this moment at that time where yeah, it, it, there was all these football records that were quite. There'd been you know decades of ones that were awful. And then all of a sudden, there was the black rate one, your one, right, yeah, you know, yeah. and it was like quite cool, really, because there were all these quite good ones. Because I remember in 1971, where, when Arsenal were, were, were about to win the double, and good old Arsenal came out on the pie label. And uh, we lived in a, a, a council flat within a house we had a floor of this house and we decorated the whole place we our cousin who lived upstairs said yeah let's do it we had banners everywhere my brother and i put our speaker from the record player on on the window ledge and played good old arsenal endlessly and of course but, nice one cyril yes yeah, you know the first football record i had which which is not doesn't probably doesn't count in the same way like when i was little and Liverpool went won the FA Cup for the first time, and I couldn't go. And my dad took my elder brother, uh, and I was, you know, I was, I was devastated. But we won, and um, and he bought me an album called EI Adio, and it was on one side, it was the commentary of the whole game, <laughs> <laughs> and the other side was just like football crowd singing songs. You know, it was. So I actually used to listen to the commentary over and again. And on was the- it like one of those Top of the Pops records where they'd actually had someone go into the studio and recreate the commentary? Yeah. No, I think it was the actual- <laughs> Trevor Horn did it. Commentary. Yeah. You've, you've ruined my memory now. It was. <laughs> but, but listen, I'm, I'm, in, I'm, I'm interested in this little bit of social history because was the first... Because no one, when you watch old uh, footage of of uh, crowds from the fifties, they just rattle rattles. They don't sing. But then there is this footage of the cop singing, I think "She Loves You" or a Beatles song. And was that the first time anyone had ever sang on a football terrace? I don't. I don't think it would. I think well, you'll never walk alone. Yeah, I think it was probably. I think it might have been the first time. I can't guarantee, it, but I think that they. I think the cops started singing songs of the day because it would, I mean, that would have been about the time when I first went to football, really. It's probably, you know, 64, 65, uh, that kind of era. So my first memory is very much shock at seeing my dad and my uncle burst into song with You'll Never Walk. I've never seen them sing before. <laughs> and, and I was like, whoa, you know, and then the cop singing all the songs they sung. So it was, it was a very, and it was a midweek game Bright, it was Liverpool Leeds, bright floodlights, you know, white, green of the pitch, red, and all these people singing. So I think the two things were fused in my head instantly, you know, and I loved the the singing really and, and the game, obviously. But it was like, I think for me, that was just the two things at the same time, you know. Well, and of course, the band that we're in, Source for the Secrets, because we play Fearless, which features the cop, which was then adopted. Yeah, absolutely, by the which they're singing on, thing, yeah, which is fantastic, yeah. which we're really proud of. I, I remember as a kid hearing that, and and yeah, it was such a strange thing because 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 I was especially from as Floyd are actually an Arsenal band. Yeah, and, and <laughs> I always remember um, hearing it and not thinking much of it because I was so used to it, and then later on thinking. 
Yeah, why is that on that record? Well, I think it's very Floydian, isn't it? Because it's in a different key and there's the yeah. dissonance that they like. Roger probably yeah. enjoyed the dissonance, didn't he? Yeah, maybe there's an irony in there. But, but, yeah. but, you know, I mean, one, you know, what you described was fantastic because there wasn't, we, none of us went to church. Well, certainly I didn't. I, you, you, I don't know whether you came from that side of Liverpool. But um, it, was, it was the only place you'd see your dad being emotional. And but also, it must have touched you musically. Does it? Is there a connection between how you want to write songs and what you did, and listening to those songs on the football terrace? Well, there's a definite connection between Three Lions yeah. and You'll Never Walk Alone. <laughs> you know, because it's the whole thing was it's a song about the fans and Three Lions, and I think previous to that, and and of course the FA really didn't like it because it's, they didn't understand. It's like well. Oh, that's interesting. They're the team and what, you know, so from day one, they really didn't get it and didn't, they just couldn't make that leap, really. You know, it's like, well, it's it's about the fans. It's not about the team, really, you know. Um, and I think, you know, you, you'll never walk alone is, is definitely, uh, you know, about, about you know, walking through a store and all that. It's about the fans with the team, I suppose, but it's a similar kind of feeling. Your songwriting is, is for a large part, very, very joyful and very up, isn't it? Somebody. I try to be really positive so that nobody can see how negative I am probably. Do you know what I mean? It's like a, a, you kind of, yeah. at first you're sort of hiding stuff, aren't you? You know what I mean? When you first start songwriting. But then I felt like it's quite easy for me to, to write more, you know, in a, in, a, in, a, in a less positive fashion. But I, I really, it was, I think, probably where I came from as well at that time with Echo and the Bunnymen, all these things in raincoats and Joy Division. And it was... That was where I was coming from. I thought, well, I can't, you know, these bands are amazing. I'm going to try and do the opposite of that, really, you know. Uh, you, know listen, you know, I was trying to sort of pinpoint where the Lightning Seeds music lived and what it had influenced. And and th th one of the tracks that I thought about it coming from was the only ones, Another Girl, Another Planet, That, oh, yeah, which, yeah. which, you know, it's got to be one of the most, I mean... I don't want to say, you know, the greatest pop record, one of the greatest pop records ever made with so much punk energy. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, actually, we covered that on, on a B-side yeah. uh, in, in the 90s. And um, fun, should I shut the doors? A playground just started outside. <laughs> well, there's all these kids. Not if they, only if they I, don't I, sing. I wondered if you had an active dungeon. <laughs> <laughs> the prisoners are getting out. I can't. <laughs> Is that okay? Yeah, why not? You know, it'll... I'll shut, I'll shut the door. He's going to shut the door. Um, He's shut the door. <laughs> but that, that, I don't know what happened to the only ones because that was the that sort of it was the only one, wasn't it? Really, Peter Parrot. Yeah, it's well. In the first group I was in, that was a band called Big in Japan. Big in Japan. Yeah, Come we on. did very little really. We only did a few gigs. It was only a couple of months. But one of the things we did do was support the only ones, and I, and I loved uh, the only ones. I loved. They had this drummer who, at the time, seemed pretty old to me. Actually, he was probably about twenty-two or something. You know, he seemed like an old fella, and uh, and he'd been in this band called Spooky Tooth. Oh wow! Who yeah, yeah. He'd seen album sleeves of, and you know, and he was like proper drummer, you know. And um, I love, you did Spooky Tooth as a drum fill there. I think because the drum, he, he made a big impression on me, that drummer, to be honest. I, 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 I don't know why I always used to watch the drummers, you know, when I, when I was watching bands, because they seemed to drive the whole thing live and the beats. But, uh, and they had a fabulous guitar player. Uh, 
And I and actually it was funny and, and he was great with me actually. And we supported him in I think in Birkenhead or somewhere. And uh, he was very you know complimentary about my kids, you know, and sort of said to me, you should you should go to London, you know, you should go to that London down there and you know and all this and kind of connected me up with a couple of people and stuff. So they they kind of had a big impression on me the only ones. And then I think the place that the bands that have been influenced by you, the the the, the track that pops into my head which came up quite a few years later um, after Jollification is, is the new radicals. You know, you can't get what you give, you know, which, which is, yeah, he was a great songwriter, that guy. Uh, brilliant. I said, yeah. Todd Rundgren chords. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I used to love, you know, a couple of Todd Rundgren songs. Yeah. Saw the light being the main. Well, because let's go back to, because Gary and I were talking about this before you came on. It was that whole Liverpool scene. You're in the beginning, which is, it was like, when punk happened, it was like there'd been this whole world just waiting to coalesce and kind of, you know, this incredible scene, the amount of people who came out, you know, everyone, you know, from your Roger Eagles and your Bill Drummonds and you and your, you know. And then Pete Wiley, uh, Julian Wiley, And it's, 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 it was, it was like a sort of punk Paris in the 20s. But, but, but you know? Death, Death School was also yeah, come up there. Yeah, Langer and, you know. Yeah, just slightly earlier, I think. Death yeah. School was just slightly pre-punk. Uh, and then, yeah, there was all us kids who used to, I suppose, I always feel like, you know, we were, a lot of misfits seemed to gather in Matthew Street. And Matthew Street, Matthew Street yeah, cool. it, you know, Matthew Street was where the cavern was. But that seemed, you know, another, even though by today's standards, probably only seven or eight years previous or 10 years previous, but it felt a long time before. And it was a rundown area of the city. And... um I think I, I, my memory of first meeting all those kind of people was, you know, I, just as I left school and for some reason I was wandering around on a rainy day and I, I wandered into that part of town, which was pretty much, you know, old cobble streets and old warehouses that were empty. And I came across this building and it said, the Liverpool School of Music, Dream, Art and Pun. Paul <laughs> Gustav Young on the wall. I was standing there thinking, that is weird, you know. And next to it were these two giant metal containers, and I, which are rusty, on waste ground. And I was like, what is this place? And this Irish guy was outside, and he said, why don't you come in and have a cup of tea? And I went, you know, I went in, and it was just these guys had just opened this warehouse. I don't know for what reason, they just felt it would be a good idea. And they... And in there, I kind of met, there was a troop of actors up from London and they were putting on a play called The Illuminatus. And I ended up in that play as a guitar player. And I met Bill Drummond was the stage manager, Jane, who was in me. And it was, and Roger Eagle was starting Eric's across the road and Probe Records opened opposite. And the whole thing just suddenly very quickly came together. But also you had, sorry, as a sort of cross-cultural thing, I don't know if this fell in the talk, because Bill used to work at the Everyman Theatre as well, didn't he? He must have, that must have been his connection previously. Because also this was the time when the Everyman had that legendary company of Bill Nye and Julie Walters. And so yeah. there was, it was yeah. like every base was covered up there. It, and it must have been connected to that. Must, that must have been why, yeah. because yeah, I, th I, I think Bill Nye was in the play and <laughs> put on by Ken Campbell and... 
a lot of oh, fans. Yeah. 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 So you, you were a seeker. That's what Ken Campbell used to call all the, all of his yeah. audience seekers. You, you oh, were the yeah. seeker. I was definitely seeking something. Yeah. And it was, I mean, it was like a new world to me that I stepped into. And, um, and what was great was then on, on, you know, I remember saying to this guy, Charlie, one of the guys, then, I said, what are those big metal things on the waste ground? And he said, oh, you know, he got this stuff out and he opened them and they were fridges with ice sculptures in. And it was like, it was like this mad little 20 yards of Liverpool in this most unlikely place that was just like, wow, you know, full of oddballs, really. And I loved it, you know, and I think that that was the start of my career in a way so but every name we mention here is you can google it and you'll you'll find out that yeah, what greats they went on to i mean bill drummond was i mean KLF, klf gave him burnt a million pounds didn't he as an art piece allegedly allegedly yeah, allegedly jimmy my mate and, and they uh yeah and famously wrote a manual on how to have a number one record yeah which someone did didn't there someone actually did it i think they did it I think they, <laughs> they, they, someone, made, someone they, they documented the making the record. Yeah, no, but and, someone actually just got the book and oh, had and did it again. And, and okay. did it, yeah, just by following the book. But wow. you, you were in a band. I must get that book. But, but you were initially, because Bill Drummond went on to manage uh, Echo and the Bunnymen, but, but you were in a band with Julian Cope, yeah. Bill originally, weren't you? You, you? you were, I mean, the Big in Japan band had Holly Johnson in. And, uh, and Holly uh, Johnson, didn't he play bass or play guitar? Bass. Yeah, Holly was the bass player. The bass player, yeah. Because yeah. you had a, Big in Japan had a kind of art school feel about them, an, an art music feel about them. There was elements of sort of electronica coming in and Roxy and, you know, I mean, obviously OMD and Andy McCluskey were around at the time as yeah. well. So there must have been that scene going on in, in Liverpool. Yeah, I remember there was, uh, in a typical Liverpool story, which I think it's okay to tell, I remember the first electronic band, just previous, but friends of theirs, I think, was a band of, of OMD. It was a band called Dalek, I Love You. <laughs> and I remember saying to the guy, it was just, I remember going to see them at Eric's on a Thursday night when no one was there. And uh, I said, so what made you, you know, what made you pick up synthesizers rather than guitars? And he said, a mate of ours said he could find, he'd found this, I think he'd found someone had, someone had basically stolen stuff from a music shop and he bought it unseen. And when it arrived, it wasn't guitars, it was synthesizers. <laughs> that was the start of the scene. And thus the 80s <laughs> were <laughs> Uh, but but uh, what was Eric's like? Because because it's it's an infamous place now. This it, yeah. it was it was the CBGBs of of the UK, really, wasn't it? Yeah, I think basically it was. You know, Roger Eagle was it was a great uh, a great guy, and he'd been. He was like a Guy Stevens character. Yeah, yeah well, yeah. yeah, he he was a D, he was a Northern Soul DJ in Manchester yeah. in quite a famous Northern Soul club called the Twisted Wheel. And uh, he had a fabulous record collection. And he'd somehow ended up in Liverpool, you know, in, in, this, in this club and decided he was going to, be, going to be based there. And he was just, um, you know, he was a real music fan, you know, a real music fan. With, I, I remember he used to go into his office and there would just be thousands and thousands of records. And at the time, I, I, it's a really treasured memory for me because I was just some kid who was kind of knocking about that street and it was his treasured record collection 
And he used to let me go in and I'd go in every week and he'd give me three records. He felt everyone should know that nobody did. And he'd give me three albums and I'd return the three he'd given me and I'd have them at home for a week, you know, yeah. and then I could come back in yeah. and switch swap them. And I, I really did discover a lot of music that way, you know, and he would tell me which ones to listen to. And it might be, you know, an old Benny King album or it might, you know, it could be anything. And it really widened my... Uh, you know, my musical kind of landscape. But at the same time, he was putting on all these punk bands and very into that whole vital energy and young bands. I remember when he died, uh, Bill Drummond wrote a a classic Bill type piece, like a eulogy piece, but talking about what should be done. And he talked about Roger's record collection. He was saying it is this great national monument. What should be done with it? Obviously, being Bill, he said it should be encased in concrete and turned into a sort of obelisk. Or At least he didn't want to burn it, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was this famous group as well called the Crucial Three, uh, which was Julian Cope and Pete Wiley and, and Ian McCulloch. Did you ever go showing and see showing the shyness and self-effacing reticence that they would go on to be known for? <laughs> <laughs> but did, did did you did you ever see that band? I don't think they ever played, to be honest, even though you might say they did. I think, you know, there was many a discussion, you know. uh, There were a lot of bands. Yeah, manifestos, lots of manifestos. Yeah, and I I think there were a lot of bands, and it seemed like, you know, you just came up with a great name, and then you all go around for a month saying you were in that band. (laughs) Uh, I think they did actually try and write a couple of songs somewhere, but I don't think they ever kind of particularly, I'm, I'm not sure they ever played. And after Big in Japan, you saw you, you had original mirrors. I mean, with uh, with um, Steve Allen was from Deaf School, right? Yeah, Steve yeah. Who I work with a lot. I went on to work with Pearls of Plastic, and in fact, well, I want to think about original mirrors because I used to go and see original mirrors a lot. Okay. Partly because I thought you were great, and also because Pete Townsend was an avowed great fan. I remember he used to wear an original mirrors T-shirt, and I used to go and see original mirrors in the hope that he'd be there. <laughs> yeah, he. it was quite a, an amazing thing for me, that, because yeah. uh, I remember, you know, you know, obviously I'd sort of come to London, come to that London, basically yeah. on the advice of the guitar player from uh, <clears throat> the only ones. And I was living in a kind of a squat in Kilburn, and I ended up in, in the band with Steve, who's probably the only person. Phil Spaulding. I, mean, I think that was. Absolutely, yeah. yeah well, the great the Phil Spaulding. And uh, yeah, it was, um, I think we played the marquee and all of a sudden this guy came in the dressing room, give me a big hug, you know, your guitar, you know, and I'm like, is this Pete Townsend? I don't know what's going on. Is this, is this Pete Townsend? You know, and then he, yeah, he used to just come to a lot of the gigs and was very supportive, yeah. great, you know, and I was a little overwhelmed, you know, by that, to be honest, you know. But, that, uh, that, uh, so you know what? I've got to say one thing about original. Sorry, Gary. No, no. One thing about original mirrors is that I've been listening to. Uh, I found some great old clips on YouTube and stuff. Oh. And do you know what? There was one track I listened. I can't remember which one it's called, but it was like, "Oh my God, it's Duran Duran." You invented Duran oh. Duran. It's literally it's that exact sound. The rhythm section, everything. It's well, you I, literally invented Duran Duran. I think it has elements of Simple Minds. Uh, yeah. It's where you two were going to go. It was it was really at the head of the curve, wasn't it? I think I I, I I seem to remember that I bought a, a space echo basically. Do you know what I mean? And I don't think many people had them. And I, I Andy loved Summers did. That was the echo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and basically, uh, 
you know, so there was a lot of that going on. And it was a very powerful rhythm section. It was like, as you say, yeah, great. Yeah. and a guy called Pete uh, Kircher, who was, had been in a lot of 60s bands, was a bit, bit older than us, uh, but like an amazingly powerful drummer, you know. Um, All the drummers seem to be a bit of a, a trademark with you. With, I always go like that, don't I, when I say drummer. You know, I don't know why I always have to do the, do the thing. <laughs> but just, just to carry on with the Pete Townsend thing while he's in our little story world, is you actually ended up doing, was it, I don't know, Tilt or one of your later Lightning Seeds albums? down at uh, Ilpai Island on his barge, didn't you? Was, was, was Pete around then? Did he suddenly go, you're the kid? Well, no, what happened was um, he'd asked me to produce an album, actually, and I was always... He, he asked me... A what, of his? Of his, yeah. Wow! And I was always, you know, reticent to do it because, you know, because it's Pete Townsend. I was like, I can't tell Pete Townsend to change that bit, you know, or, <laughs> yeah, it's Pete Townsend <laughs> telling him that, you know. <laughs> And uh, and then so it had been sort of on the for for a few years, and then we decided that what we'd do would be uh, we had we had a kind of a meeting, and I I, I love the uh, actually thinking back now it's kind of a funny thing to say but I I love the Who before it becomes ultra manly I, I like it after that as well but I really love the sixties singles and, and just the whole the vulnerable, thing. Yeah. And the footage of him in his demo place doing all the stuff. And I was like, you know, I, I love all that. I'd love to do something. Would you be up for doing something like that? So he'd, he was kind of all about, right, I'm going to just play Rick and Backer and we'll do that and we'll get the whole thing. And he had a, um, he had his, his barge. So he, I think he just maybe to be a bit like that demo studio and stuff, he said, right, let's just deck it out and make that the place that we record. So we put everything on board and stuff. And then before we were about to start, he fell off his bicycle. I got a call from his assistant saying, oh, he's fallen apart and broken two fingers. But he wants to go ahead and have someone else play guitar. Ah! And I was like, ah, you know, I, I, you know I, we can't do that really. We can't, we can't. We can't do a solo album with that idea of someone else playing guitar. So it kind of just ended up on the back burner or gone. And then because I've been setting up the uh, the barge and everything, and I remember saying, you know, I love this space, Can, you know. And he said, well, why don't you, why don't I lease it to you for 10 years? So it kind of became my studio for 10 years, which was lovely. Uh, so I had this, this lovely... Um, was that know, the big one, the big barge with the full... It's, it was an ocean-going barge, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I worked there with Gary Moore. It's, okay. it's amazing. Yeah, we had to, they had to dismantle the uh, the engine in case someone got in and drove it. I think someone did get in and drive it off once. So is that yeah, still decked out back. with your spec? No, probably not, because that desk uh, went. But it was, I mean, he'd sort of treated it. It was a, it was a great, uh, well, as you, you know then, you know, it was yeah. a lovely place. The only drawback with it was that it was on the river. And I used to go down there to write late at night sometimes. And there was a gangplank going onto the river. And uh, a spotlight would come on anytime anything moved. And this light would come on. And obviously, being by a river, there's lots of insects. So it's, I started to go in there at night, and the light would come on. And the gangplank would literally be wall-to-wall spider, giant spiders in webs. And I used to get this, and I used to I just can't get on. So he's get this stick 
and try and you literally have 2000 spiders like thousands of spiders so it became a, it became a bit of an issue to me that I couldn't get on the boat because it would be decked with spiders yeah and then we and we did a lot of acid at the time <laughs> <laughs> and it was like I literally I like, got it you know I'm writing my album I can't get on board <laughs> Uh, yeah, they're all so soft from Liverpool, aren't they? Guy. We had to hire this guy. We didn't want to kill him or anything. So we hired this guy with a giant hose who came along the river and hosed the whole thing down. And all these people were watching in the day. Must have been 10,000 spiders came off the boat. You know, it was, it was, wow. I should have, you know, in those days, I didn't have my phone, but if you'd filmed it, you wouldn't have believed it, you know? That's, oh, yeah. That's- TikTok heaven. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're still in, let's, let's get back to that, that, to that to that world still because then you had another band called care there's a bunch of these bands the wild swans that that all seem to be pouring out of of liverpool um were you were you disappointed how were you going from like big in japan to original mirrors and then to care was it a bit like your dad going son just give it up now no it was a funny it was a strange situation because i was in the band with bill and we started the label zoo records and then bill carried that on and signed Echo and the Bunny Men and Teardrop Explodes. And then the story is uh, that, well, what happened was, so <clears throat> I was at a bus stop on a place called Smithtown Road in Liverpool and the Bunny Men had just signed a record deal and, and stuff. And they were in their van, Les had bought a van, it was a rickety old van. And they were they went past the bus stop and, and stopped and said, hey, you know, like, Jump in, we'll give you a lift to Penny Lane, you know. So we walked, we, we, we got, we were in there and there was the tape on a cassette. And I was, um, you know, what's this? You know, this, this sounds good. And they were like, oh, it's us. We've just been to this place called Rockfield, but we're not happy with the recording. And me being me was like, well, that's because you're doing that right. And that should be there. And, you know, you, this, that and the other, you know. And then didn't think much of it. And they dropped me off at where I lived, you know, and went on. And then I got this call from Bill a few days later saying, oh, you know, the bunny men were saying, you had some great ideas about the songs. Do you fancy producing them, you know? And I was like, well, you know, I've never produced anything. And that sounds a bit business money. I'm not sure, you know, I'm a songwriter. And he was like, you know, they, I think it'd be great if you, if you would do it. And I was like, nah, it sounds like crossing a line. So I initially said no. And then it being Liverpool at that time and Bill being Bill, he phoned me back and he said, what about if you didn't produce them, but you had an alter ego and he produced them? And I was like, well, who is this so alter Bill. ego? <laughs> and they said, well, he said, well, do you have an alter ego? And I said, well, there has been this character called Kingbird who I've often, you know, dreamt of being. And, uh, so he said, well, King oh, that, that's Bird, handy. Kingbird can produce them. And I was like, you're right, you know. So actually the, the Bunnymen records that I produced say, you know, a Kingbird production, they don't have my name on. Uh, but that sort of set me off into this world of um, being a producer, really. I ended up, you know, producing a couple of things for them. What do you call producing? What do you think it is and what is it for you? Well, what, what it was then and what it is now were two very different things. It felt like, um, so for me, producing Echo and the Bunnymen was, they were my mates. And I just joined the band for that period of time, played guitar, wrote, you know, did whatever you did if you were in a band. That's how I saw it. But I kind of knew about microphones and all that. So 
it was like we could record it and sometimes I'd be in that room and there was no, so that really wasn't production. That was kind of, you know, there was no barriers at all. It was but a is that something that just came to you? Do you, I mean, from when you first got your guitar, you first started writing, you just always had this big picture of kind yeah, of- Yeah, I think, I think so. And, and I don't really know how I knew about recording the microphone. I don't, I don't really know how I, I remember, you know, but yeah, I, I don't know, I just seemed to be able to do it um, quite instinctively. and uh, But I was always very unwilling. It was always a little bit, um, I think it carried on that theme of me not wanting to be pulled into being a producer, really. I wanted to be a songwriter. But that kind of deflected me for about 10 years, probably, where I just was working with other people but not writing my own songs. I t- just, just talking about the sound of that band, and then there was obviously... You know, war and with Pete Wiley and 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 teardrop explodes. It was a very different sound to anything else coming out of of, of of the UK. It seemed to have a kind of, I mean, the sort of it had more in common, I think, with American groups like Television, uh, and that sort of in, intellectual art punk and Talking Heads. But it was also this amazing euphoria, energy, and 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 um, that didn't seem to be anywhere else. But but. But the Echo and the Bunny Men, I think, did have a sort of darkness, a kind of Doors sound about them. Why was that so? Li- was that very Liverpool? What was going on? Was it Eric? Well, I know speaking for myself personally, I was far more into the American in that era of punk. The bands I loved were the Ramones, Talking Heads, Television, Patti Smith. You know, and I could really, to be honest, take or leave the Clash and, and the Sex. I liked them. I used to go and see them, but the things that really fascinated me were, you know, were probably those New York, from the New York Dolls and Iggy Pop. I, I loved all that. And Lou Reed, I suppose. I was a massive Velvet Underground fan as a kid. That was my, that was the band that I loved, was, was the Velvet Underground. So it <laughs> led me into the whole New York thing. And um, I think, I, I think, you know, I've got this theory that no one else agrees with. <clears throat> which I'm going to now say. But um, so in Liverpool at the time, there was a Woolworths on Allerton Road <laughs> and maybe in town as well. And in this Woolworths, for some reason, they had this section called deletions of records. And all the records had the corners cut off them. And it was just certain records. And they were basically 60p, 70 or probably Why did they cut the corners off? No, so that you knew that it wasn't a proper album or something, you know. So it was old stock. It's like your passport, like your old. Yeah, passport. yeah. When it's no no longer valid, you know. Don't be fooled, you know. These are to be thrown away, maybe. Yeah. And um, so there was this specific load of records that were obviously left over from something, and it was basically love the doors, Faust for some reason, a lot of kraut rock kind of thing, and it was all these things, and you could. You could buy them, you know, for literally so much less than a, than a normal album, and so oh, and Captain Beefheart yeah, as well. Yeah. A lot of Captain Beefheart. I'm so I think Frank a lot Zappa. of people that's one we used to buy them because when you're a kid, you just were looking for new music. There wasn't Spotify then, or anything. So you know, you wanted you were kind of just, I would have just listened to anything that I'd never heard before. It had a good cover. You basically looked at the cover, thought that's one for me, you know, mm-hmm. and. Uh, so I remember buying Love and then really liking it and buying another. There were about three Love albums in there. And there was things from track records, which would be 
one side would be the who and one oh, side yeah, those samplers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What and you know, stuff like that. So very eclectic stuff. So for me, that's why I, you know, and Scott walks, you know, so so those things were in that shop, and I used to buy them and listen to them over and over again. And I, I think maybe if that was like that for me, maybe that was a bit of a thing in Liverpool. That Yeah, because um, yeah, what's extraordinary that. is you're talking about an incredibly cool niche record shop, but it's actually the deletion section of Woolworths. It's, it's Woolworths. <laughs> and, and funnily enough, I read a book, <laughs> you know, recently called Howling at the Moon, and it was about a guy who ran... Oh, um, what's his name? CBS, uh, Walter yeah. Yetnikoff. No, yeah. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, and in it, it says that him and the guy from Electra Records had this scam going where they would divert a load of records to a warehouse they owned and then flog them themselves with the corners cut off around the world outside the US. So it must have been, and I was like, wow, that's that's the records I used to buy in Woolworths, you know. So somehow they ended up from there in Woolworths on Alton Road in Liverpool. Yeah, one more question. And, and shaped a generation. One more question about Liverpool. Was there a sense of responsibility about being a musician in Liverpool that was greater, do you think, than anywhere else, given its history with the Beatles? It's it's one of those strange things where the Beatles had just been to a degree. Because you're talking like now... Well, not when you're young, because I was to, to you kids, it's it's kind of ancient history, isn't it? Well, I, when I was growing up and I was, you know, seven, the Beatles were... You know, Liverpool, and it, and it was all happening. And I adored the Beatles, you know, the first albums I got. And I, and I always adored the Beatles. But it was almost like, if you said that, you couldn't be in the group anymore. Do you know what I mean? It was like, no, no, that's that's old Liverpool and we're the next yeah, yeah. generation, you know. But it, it it's quite strange because, so things like that we were listening to, like The Doors and Love, felt like they were 100 years before but actually they were probably eight years before, yeah, yeah. you know, because you're talking it's 1975, 1976, and they were probably around in 1968. So, but it felt like a whole, you know, something that, you, you know, no one had ever heard of and you discovered this guy, this band called The Doors, you probably never, no one had ever heard of in the world other than you. Obviously that wasn't the case because they were a massive band. But at that time, I had no idea who they were, you know. And um, and I think, you know, the same, you know, with the Velvets and all that. And I think there was a, just a gathering of people who were a little bit misfits, really, all in Matthew Street around that time in Eric's, just at the moment when punk rock was happening. So you'd get, you know, the bands had come over from Manchester to play on a Thursday night and it would be the Buzzcocks and the Fall and all these things that you were scratching your head about. What is this? You know, it's great. Like, but what is it? You know, and so you were getting a very eclectic mix of magazine. Kind of, magazine. Yeah. yeah, magazine. Well, uh, so know, what, was the, what, what was the thing between Liverpool and Manchester? Was it sort of competitive or was it? I don't think it was. It's, no. it didn't, I used to, you know, produce records for Factory and, and Tony Wilson would be in Liverpool and, uh, there was Zoo and there was Factory. OMD, I think, some, you know, did the record on Factory, not on on Zoo. Uh, because Bill probably didn't understand what a synth was at that time or something. What, you know? Um, and you know, early on, big in Japan, joy of it. Yeah, you know, that we'd all be playing the same little venues, rafters in Manchester or wherever it'd yeah, be. Yeah. 
so it felt very connected. It felt more like, I, I, I'm sure you felt the same at that time. It felt more like anyone who got the Ramones and got that whole thing was part of your gang. It didn't really, it wasn't geographical. They were people you could get on with. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode of Rock on Tours is sponsored by AG1, the daily nutrition supplement. AG1 is a comprehensive and convenient blend of over 70 vitamins, minerals and other vital ingredients like gut-friendly bacteria, antioxidants and much more. Just one scoop of AG1 daily has all the nutrients you need to support your mental performance, energy levels, heart health and immune system. To be honest, it's pretty vital stuff for us because when you've got a life on the road and you're short of time or you're too busy to plan and prepare healthy meals, you're getting your podcast together, you're being shouted at and it's just a nightmare. AG1 gives me all the good stuff and helps keep my energy levels where I need, ready for showtime or doing the podcast and with a nice vanilla taste. It keeps me focused, feeling good, feeling healthy with its daily dose of vitamin C and zinc. And it's so easy to use. Just one scoop a day gives me over 70 carefully selected ingredients. Simple. Trusted by Olympians, F1 drivers and the rock on tours. So if you want to replace your multivitamin and more, start with AG1. Try AG1 and a free one year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first subscription. Go to drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. That's drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. Check it out. We can't get on to the lightning seeds before we talk about you producing Marky Smith and the fall. I mean, I can't think of anything more terrifying. Could you guys? I mean, <laughs> have you, did you ever meet? Do you know, no, the, uh, the one encounter I had with him was I went to Manchester. I had to get the train and I was meeting someone at the station and they said sorry i'm going to be late so um i just so I, there was that pub right next to manchester piccadilly right there's that pub just there i thought i'll just go and sit in the pub and i went into the pub and marky smith came and sat at the next table and i just thought you're having a laugh aren't you this is just manchester <laughs> manchester yeah <laughs> how was it uh, i i got great with mark actually i i really uh i i really liked mark you know and, and uh at that time actually i was just <clears throat> at the point where I was I was sort of right if I don't do my own songs now I'm going to end up being a producer and I, I don't want to be a producer you know I like the whole idea of producers particularly and uh you know and then I ended up with the fall and, and we were chatting about it and he was like I had a couple of songs makes me cringe now a little bit that I'd written and I ended up kind of playing them and he was like amazingly supportive you know and re- you've got to do this and really encouraging and he used to but he he wanted me to call it i decided to call it lightning seeds but he was like no you've got to call it the hordes of brood and he used to send me letters with and he'd draw the hordes of brood with with bows and arrows and stuff and he was lovely you know and he was to be fair i don't know if i'd have had the confidence to actually make you know to record my own songs without his ambience oh, wow, okay. so encouraging you know they, to be honest and at the time probably Ian McNabb as well they were just very very you know encouraging and kind of um you know so it was quite it was quite um 
Ian McNabb, yeah, no, Ian, McNabb, great Ian McNabb had high school works, right? That was they had quite yeah. a, a couple yeah. of big kids. But 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 uh, did he not play mind games at all in the studio? No, I mean he was. I thought it was hilarious. He was just, you know, he was a total eccentric, and he could yeah. be, you know, I'm sure he could be the devil, or he could be, you know, and but I it, I just remember laughing loads, and you know, there's one there's one Marky Smith story that. Uh, We'd recorded an album and we'd mixed it and we were going to the townhouse to master it. And uh, we were mastering with a guy called Ian, I think. So we sat there and we, we, we had this, I think it was probably the two inch or the quarter inch and, that, and it was all sounding great. And Mark arrived and uh, he had his, he'd always survived, he'd have his Leo's, which was a supermarket in Manchester with beers in it, cans of bitter, you know. So, you know, he sort of arrived cracked open a beer and we played it. And yeah, I remember him saying, yeah, that sounds all right. You know, that sounds all right. But I was at home and I've got the cassette you gave me and I played it through this and it sounded great. So could you put a mic on this and make that the record? And I was like, oh, you know. And you sure, you know, that's it. I'm sure he knew it was just, you know. And I was like, well, uh, you know, and he was like, well, you know, can you do that, you know? The, the challenge is him saying, tell me why. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. And I was getting ready this whole speech of why that's not a great <laughs> idea. And, you know, and it's so obvious that it's hard to explain. And before I can say anything, the master and engineer, Ian, said, just a second, hold on. And he left the room and he came back with a massive knife, like a massive bread knife type thing. And he kind of walked past Martin. He had showed him the knife and put the knife on there and he said, I think we'll just do what we were doing. We just mastered it and left the room. And Mark said to me, he's great, that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Did you say it was a great thing in Viz last month or the month before, which was full lawyers for you? Like, have you been injured at work? It was most people in Britain have been a member of the fall at some point. Were you unfairly dismissed by Mark and Smith? Yeah. <laughs> it could be money waiting. <laughs> he, ju he just tested you, you know, and, and, but it was funny, and then when he left, and he was like, "He's great, that guy." And it was we were both laughing, you know. And it was, it, you know, you'd always be laughing at the end. Yeah, where did Pure come from? And uh, not not just how did it happen, but why were you writing a song like that, given this kind of background of music that we're talking about? I think um, you know when you write it. I'm sure if you you know you you have this idea about what you'd like to do, and then something comes out that's not in what you were trying to do, you know, you just, you do what you do, I suppose, you know. And, uh, you know, I was writing a few songs and I, and I um, interestingly, I, Pure was the first song that I really wrote a lyric to myself. And I'd oh. written it and I felt, when I went to record it, I was recording it and I thought, um, I've blown it, you know, because you, you usually see a lyric she'd written up and this had, Tons and tons of work. It was like Lion's Man in the Dog. And I was like, oh, I've, I've, this is not how a song should look. So I sang it. And then I thought, it is way too many words. And I remember saying, so I never mixed it. And I never top and tail the front and the end. I remember saying to the engineer, I'm scrapping this one. Don't, you know, this is too. And he was like, I think this is a, a great one. I was like, I'm giving, you know, it's too, it, it's like I'm just talking. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's too personal. I think, you know, it should be simpler. 
So he said, well, let me just put it down. So he put it down onto the DAT. And then later when I sort of sent off, there was basically a guy and I'd been producing a band called The Pale Fountains. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And this guy who um, was a, a, a publisher and he was a 60s guy with a big cigar and uh, a rogue, a lovable rogue. Who was it? And who? Who? A guy called Dick Leahy. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, he'd said to me, "If you've ever got any, you know," he'd said to me, "You're obviously, you know, like, good. You're making this band sound a lot better than than they would. You know, if you've ever got a song yourself, you know, send me your songs. You know, and all that." So I, I sent this dat or this a cassette of a copied it, and I sent it to him. And I really didn't have any idea how to go about, you know, getting a record contract or anything because I didn't have a group, you know. So at that time, everyone in Liverpool, like the, the record companies were coming to Liverpool, seeing a band, signing them for loads of money, whether it was, you know, there was the Lars, the real people, the, the you know, just all these bands were signing these deals, you know. And I was like, well, I don't really have a band. And, I, and I'm just recording this, you know, like recorded it mainly at home. And a little bit in the studio to, to see the singing when they gave me some free time in the studio in, in Kirby in Liverpool. So you know, I didn't really know what to do it. So I sent I sent in these songs, and that was on the front of it, but I hadn't realized. And then he sort of gave me this phone call. I remember it, you know, he phoned up and he said, I'm sitting in my garden, I've got a lovely chilled glass of rose, and I'm listening to the song. You know, and I was like, which song? He's like, pure. What, you know, it's great. Let's put it out, you know. And I was like, well, we'll have to go and get a record contract. And he said, we'll have 500 pressed up and I'll hire a plugger. So I was like, okay, you know, so that's what he did really. So, and I was like, well, that, that's not really, you know, I haven't really finished that one. And he was like, no, it's perfect, you know. And I was like, well, you know, it's got all this bit where I'm getting in time at the beginning, going bum, bum, to get in time for when it starts. And he's like, no, no, that's part of the charm, you know. So, and he was dead right, really. So he had 500 pressed up. And we put it, rough trade shop, put them put them out a bit. And it kind of just hung around for months and months, you know, and it was, it phoned me up every few weeks to say, oh, it's number 167 in the charts. And then it's <laughs> gone up to 152. Is it getting radio plays? It was getting, well, it wasn't really. And then John Peel played it. And then we'd hear like a bloke in Stoke was playing it all the time, <laughs> someone on a local radio on the evening. And it just gradually started to kind of perk. And it was out for ages. And then it eventually it just, um, I think it was Steve Wright who was in the afternoon show. And apparently, I don't know, the plugger had got him to play it, which was, you know, kind of weird. Who was the plugger? Do you remember? Yeah, I was going to say. I called Scott Peering. Oh, oh he, Scott Peering. He was a legend. He was a legend. The yeah. Le- yeah. He was a yeah, great guy. Yeah. And um, he uh, and Steve Wright played it and ha- and they'd said to me, you know, uh, you know, he's going to, he's going to play your record on the radio, you know, and all that, you know, so I was listening, you know, and I got halfway through and he took it off. And I thought, oh, oh no, you know, he, he thinks it's not up to standard, you know, and he, and he, and he said, I'm just saying, who is this? You know, I'm going to play it again from the beginning. This is great. And he played it. And then he, I'm going to play it again. He played it again, you know, which was kind of unheard of. And that was the moment it just sort of, right. 
you know, the people at the radio went, oh, we better put this on the list. And all. so then promptly, I think we'd, we'd done a, you know, a video in my back garden or something, you know, and, and uh, they put the video on top of the pops. It ran out of records completely because there were only about, you know, a thousand of them yeah. in existence. And then it just, I don't know, it just carried on from there, really. And it started to get play in America. Rodney Bingenheimer it, rang you, didn't he? That, that was the thing. He, he uh, so I was, I was sort of in Liverpool. The phone went, you know, and uh, this guy said, is this the lightning seeds? You know, I was like, well, it's Ian, you know. And he said, uh, I'm, I'm in LA. My name's Rodney Bigger. I'm playing your record on K-Rock. You're the number one most requested record in California. And I was like, who is, is that, this? Is that Rodney Bingenheimer as in Rodney's English disco? Yeah. Yeah. Well, wow. yeah, I think he was kind of matey Mark. It was, he was a bit of a legendary character. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's where Bowie never used to hang out. Yeah. And, and Iggy. Yeah. He was like, um, you know, he's still around. He's still around. Okay. And, and I, I said to him, who is this? My record's not even out in America. So I know it's bullshit. You know what I mean? And he was like, no, I, I was in Portobello Market, heard it, brought it back to America, played it. And then the other stations started importing it, and now it's 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 most requested because no one can buy it. Because K Rock was a massive station, it broke uh, it broke our band, it broke Duran Duran. This is all out of uh, you, know, you know with a guy called Richard Blade out of um, yeah. LA, LA. And, and you know from there, I think it went on to MTV, and then it started to sort of be around America and stuff. So it was like it was a bit like a fairy, you know. I mean, it was like a bit of a mirror. I mean, I, you know, I was totally unprepared i didn't have a group i'd never sung in public but you have this great production career behind you already it's quite, I mean, <laughs> I that's what's extraordinary about this yeah. you know? as long as they didn't need a gig i was fine yeah. <laughs> yeah so then you have to put a band together right well i didn't actually we didn't actually right. play until the third album uh <laughs> i remember them phoning up and and I, actually i remember this silence i think i was on a a, a, a I sort of want um, a call where they've got you on the speaker in a meeting room and they signed me to MCA in America and they said, great, you know, we need to get the band out here on tour, you know, and I said, oh, you know, there isn't a band, you know, it's just me. And they said, okay, we can put a band together. And I said, oh, I don't really sing in public. And there was just silence, do you know what I mean? And I, I genuinely thought, I'd never thought it through really. I'd never really thought, you know, I'd only ever sung in the studio, you know, and, 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 uh, so it was very daunting to me. So I didn't actually do that until Jollification, which was um, probably about four years later. So, but when did I? When would I have met you? Because I met you at La Park Hotel, and it, yeah. it would have been Riley, wouldn't it? The you know the, yeah. who inspired the life of Riley. It that's, would have been Riley swimming in the in the pool with my son Finn. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I'm guessing um, Riley's in his early thirties now, right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so. What was that? Was that the first tour you you did out there? It wasn't a tour. So because I didn't play live, and I think the second album was out, and it was, I think the singles, Sense and Life for Riley, were on college radio and all that. So they brought me out for a, uh, a radio promo tour. So I used to just go and do interviews, and they put me in, in the park, and then they'd fly me out to various places you know, right, right, right. to do interviews, yeah. So I was... Uh, yeah, and I still wasn't playing live then, really, you know. And then you get the match of the day thing with Life of Riley, right? Yeah, which was... It was, uh, was that kind of what 
made you put the sort of football music thing on your radar? I don't know. It's just yeah, I, I don't know. Stupid. Stupid. That, that, that was, was completely random, you know. Yeah. That, was, that was so random because obviously it's a song about waiting for him to be bored and worrying yeah. about it, you know, so it, it was couldn't have been further away. But then it did seem to really fit with the with the football, you know. So I suppose that was a little hint that one day, you know, football would be a... <laughs> Listen, I love Jollification. When it came out, I played it so much. Um, I just thought it was. I, I've heard. I've read that you don't like this phrase, but I thought it was perfect pop, uh, and perfect is the first track on the album. Um, I mean, I think Lucky You is still one of the greatest pop records of all time. I mean, seriously, seriously. And what I didn't realise at the time is that you co-wrote that with Terry Hall from the Specials. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How, yeah. how did how did that come about? Well, I suppose we were... Um... Had you stayed in touch the whole time since... No, not really. Um, I, I, I remember meeting him then and then I kind of bumped into him. I think he was a fan of the Bunnymen. Um, and we were at a festival that Peter Gabriel had called Womat and the oh, Bunnymen yeah. were playing with the Burundi drummers. And I remember I was standing on the side of the stage with Terry and we were chatting. And then I think Pete, who was the drummer in the Bunnymen... Defratus. Yeah, Pete Defratus. He played on a Colourfield album. So Terry was in Liverpool. And we all used to have a football game that we played in Sefton Park. And I remember Terry coming to the football game and us playing football. And that was, I think that was the start of our friendship. And then he sort of said, would you fancy producing a couple of tracks? And kind of went from there. And then, yeah, I remember we decided we'd try and write a song. I was going to do the second album. And we wrote a song called Sense. But we, and I think he thought he was writing it so he could record it. And I thought I was writing it so I could record it. <laughs> we never really discussed it. How, how did you write song. together? Did you say, I've got these chords, and he comes up with the top line and the melody or the lyrics? Yeah, something like that, really. Yeah, I had a porter studio, and he came up to Liverpool, my young gal, and then he took a little porter studio version of it home with humming and stuff. And then he put, you know, some words to it. And, and then, uh, and then I was recording the album in the front. I, I wasn't recording in the studio then still. I was just recording at home. So I had a sort of, actually, my bro I was recording in my brother's, my brother had a house and I had all my stuff in his front room because he wasn't using that room. So then Terry came to that room and we, you know, went through the lyrics and sung it that day. Uh, and that was the record kind of thing. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't. Uh, Did you feel on this album, Making jollification. Do you think this is it? This is what the lightning seeds I've been I've been aiming for all this time. This because it was well, it was an incredible record. It, it was a funny situation. So I got dropped by MCA. Rough trade had gone bankrupt, you know. So I, I didn't really have a record contract, but I'd moved my stuff out the house and had a studio in the centre of Liverpool, and I was kind of becoming a producer. But I had my song so I decided just to record it so I'd, I'd recorded pretty much most of of the record but I didn't have a record contract I wasn't sure it would come out and it had been so I still didn't have a band and I hadn't played live but what was great was the technology had moved on and although you didn't have logic or any of the computers and stuff I had an S900 and I could sample and I'd heard De La Soul and the hip-hop records and I thought well, maybe I could adapt the way they record and use loops. So myself and a guy called Simon Rogers, and we'd get records and record loops into the into it. So there's no there's there's no drums really on on, on that. It's all it's all kind of 
loops and stuff we took off records because I didn't have a band, you know. So we kind of got halfway through doing it and I was producing a track for Alison Moye, actually. Oh. And her, the, her A&R person came up to hear some bits and then we were chatting afterwards and we got on really well and he was saying, yeah, I love the lightning seeds. What, what happened to that, you know? And I was like, oh, you know, I, I don't have a, have, a, have a record contract, you know, I am recording some tunes, you know, and he said, can I hear them, you know? So I played him the songs and he was like, I, I just want to sign this. And so I just basically ended up, he said, you know, sign to us and finish the record. We'll put it out. We've got a promise you'll do some gigs. And I was like, yeah, no, I'm up for doing kicks. So that was the that was the bargain. Was you know you'll you'll play live. Sorry, could you remember the first time you you actually did get up and sing live? Yeah, I was terrified, and it was kind of Cause weird. Because listen, you're getting on a bit to be singing live for the first time, aren't you? By the time you well, do that, for that photo, gone for the no, but I mean, you know, <laughs> no, normally kids do it in their in their teenage years. No, exactly. So you're rubbish at it, and you're and in in a sense. You're growing up in public, so it, it is quite daunting, you know. It's the idea of you know monitors and what this is, you know, this isn't like the studio at all. Um, Where was it? So it was, uh, it was really daunting. We we played um, we, we played a place called the Duke of York in is it is it York probably or, or the Duke of, <laughs> it was somewhere like that, you know. And uh, it was like a pub, and uh, there was this guy, and I, I always remember. Um, I thought, well, we've never had a gig on sale. I wonder if anyone will come. And they put the gig on sale. And then he phoned up and he said, the tickets are nearly all gone. It's been great. You know, and it was only a war. And I was like, okay. And then about two days before, the guy phoned up again. He said, sorry, I was looking in the wrong drawer. I've, been, I've had a sold out notice up for ages and all the tickets are in the other drawer. So there's, <laughs> <laughs> there's no one coming. Great, thanks. So that was the start of my live career was the tickets were in the wrong drawer. But oh, we, we sold them all. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like, this is great. This is live stuff. Uh, and we did a gig and then we drove to London and we played uh, the place off Tottenham Court Road, whatever it was called. Astoria? Uh, oh, not the um, uh, uh, Break for the Board. No, not the... Um, yeah, yeah, damn, yeah, yeah. The Mexican... Uh, I the bookshop hit heel, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. The, oh, what's it called? Damn, legendary place downstairs. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Break, yes. It is break for the border, but it, it's something like that, isn't it? It's, it's something. Yeah, it's, I can't remember what it's called, but uh, borderline, borderline. borderline. That's it. That's it. Well done. Yeah, Madonna, of course. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, so we played the borderline. It was terrifying, you know. And then you know we were off and running, but I, I actually, and then I thought. You know, I don't think I could bear to do more of this. It's it's terribly frightening. And um, and Terry actually funny said, "Why don't we just do some gigs together? And you'll see your mate singing, and we'll just segue it all into one." So I, we ended up we sort of had a band that played with both of us, and I did a few tunes, and then he came on. We sort of just made the whole thing into one thing. We did three gigs like that, and that gave me a bit more confidence to be on stage. So that kind of, I think it was great of him to do that, actually. Have you produced then, the specials? And, that's very generous, Terry. Very lovely of him. Um, no, no, but I produced I produced Terry's solo album. We've written a fair bit together and, uh, you know, we've stayed friends. Can so, you be produced? 
Um, or do you respond very badly <laughs> to ask other people about that? <laughs> uh, ask his mother. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not, um, I'd say, well, actually, on my new album, it's quite lovely, actually, because I hadn't done an album for 14, 15 years. And I, I wasn't sure I wanted to do one. Um, and I was quite enjoying just the the romantic idea of the troubadour, you know, just playing live, not worrying about recording, enjoying, you know, complete reversal of, of previously where I, had, I was daunted by because I, I really like it now and I really like singing. And so well, Tales told you're going in that sort of direction, aren't you? Yeah, and just it's a, a bit lovely more. record by a lovely see you, record. see you in the Thank stars. You. Yes, very nice album. We got sent it. Thank you. Um, and uh, my I produced a band when when sort of Lightning Seeds went on pause because we had Tilt, which was a massive flop. And it felt like, oh, that's probably that was stopped for a while. And what will I do? I sort of started working. I kind of reverted, I suppose, to me, to being a producer. And I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I started working with a couple of unsigned bands from Liverpool who my mate Nathan had played me uh, a tape of this band. And I thought, they're, they're really good, you know. So I kind of got in touch. And one of those one of those bands was called The Coral and then I later produced their first three albums or whatever and then they've grown up now and James is a producer and James was like you know you need to do a record just come up to Liverpool I've, I'm in the studio here I'll produce you and my first thought was as you just said am I producible you know I don't know if I'm producible <laughs> you know but we again we're I, I suppose the people who, who've I've remained very close to would be who I've produced would be Terry, the Bunnymen, and the Coral, really. And I feel like it's almost like family. So I went up and James produced a track. You know, we just spent two days. And it's a track uh, called It's Great to Be Alive, which I'd, I'd sort of written, but I wasn't sure. You know, when it's an abstract idea that you might do some more recording, you, you know, you're like... But then once you make a track and you think, oh, I like this, you know, I'd like someone to hear this, and you start getting a couple more, then then it starts to become a reality, and you think I've got these songs that I actually like, and I'd like I'd like to release something, and and then everything grows from. And you there. wrote another track so, with Terry, didn't you? Yeah. So then I wrote a track called Emily Smiles with Terry, and and so it was kind of my friends got me back up to speed in a way, you know, which 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 is great. And Riley is is my manager and plays guitar with me That's now. Amazing. So it's become a friend and family affair. That but but thing, you know, what's, what's, what's incredible about you is that you listen to all of your records. Your voice has never changed. You know, <laughs> yeah. you're still... Yeah, I mean, we're, we're all secretly... <laughs> now, I think all three of us are secretly in our 60s now. But you, yeah. listen, but you <laughs> listen to your voice and you're still that young kid who, who sang pure. I can't hear any difference. You've got a vitality and a youthfulness that, that still comes across on the record. Thanks. I, 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 maybe that comes from not, you know, I'm not a singer. I sing, you know, I think there's, there's people who are singers and when they're growing up, they imagine themselves as, you know, David Bowie, you know, and I think I imagine myself as Mick Ronson always. I never imagined myself as, as David. I was always Side Mick. Man. Yeah. Uh, and then I've ended up singing. So I think maybe it's something to do with that. You know, it's it's like you're always making up for that. So you're always trying to, I always feel like, you know, you have to have a great melody if you're not a great singer. But if you've got a great melody, you can't go far wrong. And then that takes you back into 
trying to be completely positive without being banal. And I think it's quite difficult to make positive up records without being banal. And, and I, I don't have a problem with perfect pop. I just think I would hate perfection and my records are all happy accidents, but I am a bit obsessive and I definitely think the pursuit of excellence is... I was I was watching uh, Jay Z. So into... like you're pitching to produce our album. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I was I was watching Jay Z last why. night being interviewed, <laughs> and Jay Z said, uh, you know, I think to be a proper to be a proper successful star, you have to have three decades of successful music, and you qualify because you 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 know the eighties you're you're making producing hit records, you know the nineties you're making hit records. Then you're back in production. I mean, we're passing over the Corals and the Zootons, but I mean, both of them platinum yeah. records. But you're back now doing what you want to do on your own. Are you going to go and play live? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, um, I, I, I've, I've continued playing live and I, I've got a lovely band around me. For, it's taken about taken all this time. I've got a lovely band around me. I love playing the gigs. The whole thing is my favourite bit now, really, to be honest, because I think what I loved about recording you know when i was a producer and i had the studio i loved the camaraderie of the top you know you're getting in the morning it'd be a bit cold get the tea on everyone had arrived you chatted you know then you all start I'm doing the drum thing again then then we'll <laughs> start playing and i love that sociability of, of of musicians i love i just think i i, I love all that and, and it's become a bit more of a solitary computer operator yeah. kind of situation you know which and I, i'm doing the last album i did it a lot like that a lot of it was i've always recorded at home but i used to always have people around you know so i sort of i think i drifted into that and i've sort of so now i i'm only going to work in company if you know what i mean i'd rather i i think there's a there's a slightly lost art when you're talking about production and, and going through decades and stuff like that i used to know when to go that's the take and now yeah, I, yeah. I was trying to do that you know during this and it's like well that's not the take but it can be because we can yeah. do all this and we might do yeah. that and you know yeah. you'd have to commit you like, have to commit to anything yeah yeah and, and i feel like i really miss the commitment and the the thing of being with other people and creating a moment and my favorite bit about recording was that moment when you got it and it would probably be over just a few days and it's coming through the speakers and you've mixed it. And it's something that didn't exist and now does exist and is something and you can't change it, you know, and now everything's completely changeable all the time and all records are made like that. And I miss, and I think I hear it when I hear things now, you know, and so I really would like to make some records that are a lot of people in a room creating something for that moment yeah i think you know i get i get it entirely you know i sit here and I make music on my own i can't get around to singing on my own I, I don't know whether it's good or bad you know i have to, i always want to get someone in for that but I, there's nothing that beats the tour that i'm on with at the moment with guy you know we've been yeah. we've been touring all yeah that band camaraderie the humor the fun we have guy is yeah is, uh, it's, yeah yeah. It's, it's why you do it in the first place. Yeah. It? And I feel like a lot of the time, I'm, I'm, I mean, this might be a bit technical. I don't know if it's, if it's, but 
I feel like I'm in front of a cruise screen going, that's almost like the real thing. Hmm, that's almost like yeah. the real thing. Yes, that's yeah, almost yeah, like yeah, the real yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I think you too wrote that, didn't they? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I think, well, you know, the real thing's over there. Why don't I just pick it up, you know, or, or you know. And, you know, so uh, anyway, just for self-gratification, I think that's my ambition now over the next couple of years is to make some more records, but in company and with an ensemble and capturing those moments, you know. Brilliant. Is the record, when's the record coming out? Uh, about four weeks time, I think. Yeah, something like that. Quite You've got that really tempting thing on Apple Music, haven't you, where there's like one or two tracks and then there's they're all greyed out. It's a funny thing that, isn't it? Was oh, is that is it on there like that? Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah. Not, right. Okay. Yeah, a... yeah I, I, uh, it's quite daunting having something, you know, just having something out in the world. And where um, are the gigs? Where are you going? Just basically November, we're just around the country, really. Liverpool, London, Manchester, all, all of you know, Leeds, Sheffield, Oxford, all of, you know, about sixteen gigs because we haven't obviously it's, it's, haven't played new music for a long time and. That's a tricky thing at this point, isn't it? Because everyone wants to hear the hits and obviously I will play all the hits. So you end up probably playing two or three new ones and varying them every night. Well, thanks for like revealing some of the ghosts. And mate, zero years of hurt. <laughs> well, kind of, yeah. <laughs> well, the next one. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's this Christmas, isn't it? It'll be back. back. Yeah, well, it was fantastic, actually, the, the lionesses. It was just such a beautiful thing and just the way they... Yes, again, the so, girls show us how it's done. It's just great and just, the way, <laughs> you know, just all the paraphernalia of Apart the Premier League from, yeah. was, wasn't there, you know. Yeah, great. no, it was just wonderful, the, the kind of, the lack of taking themselves seriously and the inclusivity of... There's, such great is Vindaloo it's coming the only in? time you can do a Christmas football record isn't it this this is probably the only yeah, time yeah. ever that you can do that Vindaloo's not coming out again is it Guy uh, not, not that I'm aware of <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for coming on that's been lovely chatting thank really you really great talking for, uh, to you really really um, lovely yeah. man uh, thank you this is, this, is your, this is our kind of first we're back after our first big break. So oh, okay. a really lovely place to start. So thank you. Okay, well, it was very easy chatting to you. So thank you very much. Yeah, good luck with the album. Yeah, thanks very, very much. Best, mate. Really Cheers. And, and anytime you fancy a cup of tea, that'd be lovely. Yeah. That was a lovely season opener. Nice to be back again. Because I've got to say, I was nervous because it's just been so long since we've done it. Yeah. I haven't seen you for so long, Gary. It's like having to get you to know you again. Did you take a, you took a long time in front of the mirror this morning preparing yourself? Getting the sort right. of days. It's just been three yeah. days. Touch-ups and stuff. Zoom yeah. filters. Varying <laughs> <laughs> ones. Um, Therapy. So nice to be back. I, I hope that was a good season opener. And we will... We're, in fact, we're recording, actually, this week, aren't we? We're doing a few, to be honest. We're doing a few. We're trying to get them in before we head stateside. So, yeah. Um, we've got some great, great ones coming up. That oh, I'm yes. very excited about. So, until then, it's good night for me. And it's good night from everyone.